Father, thank you for the amazing God of love that you are. Lord, we long to worship you with all of our hearts this morning. We long to hear your voice more clearly than we ever have before. Would you speak to us through your word? Thank you, God, that you want to do this. I pray that you'd open our eyes, our hearts, you'd open our ears, that we would be able to hear your voice. Lord, any distractions, anything that keeps us from hearing you, we give you permission to just move those things aside and to fix our hearts on our infinite God of love. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. They found the tablet and in the 1950s, they went and they began to translate it. And as they were going through this tablet, they, they discovered something fascinating. You see, he had been a world leader. He was at the top of his control of the world. And he had had a mutiny in his army. See, this was Nebuchadnezzar. This was back in uh, four, 494 B.C., Back 500 years before Christ, Nebuchadnezzar had been taking over the world. He had this vast world empire, but something went wrong. And the tablet simply tells us this. It tells us that he began to put down this insurgence, and it specifically says this, that he slew many of his own army, his own hand captured his enemy. Something had gone wrong in Nebuchadnezzar's army, and suddenly his army was was seeking to, to, to do away with Nebuchadnezzar himself. And so he went and he had to kill some of his own army in order to restore the peace. Nebuchadnezzar, fascinating story because when we look in the Bible, we see this self-possessed leader. We see this, this leader that has control. We see this leader that in 605 BC is going to Jerusalem, ransacking the temple. He's taking the precious emblems from the temple, these, these precious uh, parts of the temple and taking them all the way back to Babylon, putting the vessels of the temple into his temple back in Babylon. And we, I find this fascinating because let's look at a story in Daniel chapter 3. Now, you know, Daniel and Revelation are linked really closely. We've been talking about the book of Revelation for several weeks, and we haven't talked a lot about Daniel, but this is too good to pass up. As we've been looking at Revelation chapter 13, we need some backstory in order to get a little bit better grasp on what's happening in Revelation chapter 13. So go with me to Daniel chapter 3 where we pick up this fascinating story. Now if you've read Daniel before, you know that in Daniel chapter 2, we have the story of Nebuchadnezzar having a dream. And do you remember some of the medals that were in his dream? The head was of gold and that Daniel said, that represents you, O king. That represents Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar liked that a lot. But then he said, okay, so the silver, that represents an inferior kingdom that's going to come after you. Nebuchadnezzar might not have been so pleased with that. He didn't say so at the time. But then there's going to come a bronze kingdom, and then the the iron kingdom representing Rome. So you have Greece, Rome, and then the 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 feet of iron and clay that represented the tribes that overtook the barbarian tribes that overtook the Roman Empire. And so he has this this dream, and at the end of the dream, do you remember what he said about Daniel's God? In Daniel chapter two, he says, "Your king, your God is the God of gods. He's the Lord of lords." This. Daniel's God is the revealer of secrets, and, and here he has revealed this to me. And it's, it's a beautiful thing, first of all, that, that this God 
whose temple had been ransacked by Nebuchadnezzar, chooses to come and reveal to Nebuchadnezzar this picture of what's going to happen in the future. This is the way the world is going to go on. This is what world history is going to look like. And he reveals it hundreds and thousands of years in advance. But then... Something happens, and we don't know exactly what happens, but, but our guess might be, and historians' guess is that, that maybe it was this mutiny in Nebuchadnezzar's army. Things are going wrong. Here he has all of these nations, and things are under his control, these languages and peoples, but they're not really under his control. There's some backlash against the force with which he is controlling them. And so he does this. Look at Daniel chapter 3 and verse 1. It says this, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits. All right. So this is a huge statue. 60 cubits is 18 inches per cubit, 19 inches per cubit. This is about a 100-foot high statue, one of the greatest statues that would have been around in that time frame. And it's width, 6 cubits, close to 10 feet in width. This this incredibly huge statue on the plain of Dura. It says he set it up in the plain of Dura. Now notice, in the province of Babylon. Okay, so Babylon was where Nebuchadnezzar was originally from, and this is one province. But, but notice what Nebuchadnezzar does. He sets up this, this golden statue, and, and why does he make it of solid gold? He didn't like his dream. <laughs> yeah, so an inferior nation's going to come and overtake me? Is this what this mutiny is all about? Is, I don't think so. Babylon, my kingdom, will last forever. I am making a statue that is of solid gold. To represent that my kingdom is going to be the greatest, that I will build an empire that will never be destroyed. You know, the end picture of that dream was that a rock would come and set up this kingdom of God for all of eternity. But no, he said, my kingdom is going to last. And so... In order to establish this in people's minds, notice what he does in verse 2. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces. Right. So now all of these realms that he has conquered, all of the leaders from the governors to the treasurers to the magistrates, all of these people, he's like, okay, every official in my kingdom is going to come together And what are we going to do when they get there? They come together to the dedication of this image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So when they all come together, he sends out this herald in verse 4. And the herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages. You see, these aren't just Babylonians. These are peoples of various nations, various languages, gathered together there in the plain in front of one statue that represents Babylon. Therefore, to you it is commanded that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Simple enough, right? When you hear a lot of music, everybody bow down and worship this image, which represents that my kingdom is the best kingdom and that it will last. Then verse 6, and whoever does not fall down... And worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. This is how Nebuchadnezzar operated, right? People mutiny in his army, he destroys them. And now he brings all of his leaders together, all of the government officials, and he's like, okay, everybody, 
If you're going to serve me, then you need to bow down to what is representative of Babylon lasting forever. And if you don't, we'll just burn you in this fiery furnace. Now, this is fascinating because if you're reading the letter that John writes from the Isle of Patmos, and he has these visions, and he has all of these visions that we've been talking about, and if you've missed any of them, I'm sorry, uh, you can go onto YouTube, and you can go on the YouTube channel, and you can, you can pick up where we're at, and hopefully we'll able to be able to make it clear enough today. But we're talking about the land beast. You remember what we've been talking about the land beast in Revelation chapter 13? You can hold your finger in in Daniel chapter 3 because we'll be back there. But in Revelation chapter 13, you find this land beast that arises from where? From out of the earth, out of the land, which represents a sparsely populated area as opposed to the the strife and conflict of the sea and the, the many people that are there in the sea. And it rises up. It's a relatively young nation represented somewhat by the lamb likeness, but also the it has these two horns that don't have crowns on them. It's not going to have a king. And it it has both the principle that is lamb-like in its founding documents of liberty of conscience and also civil liberty. Freedom from a pope and freedom from a king. And and the United States rises up as this this beautiful power, but yet we've seen over the past few weeks that that while it has these lamb-like qualities, what does it do? It speaks like a dragon. And, and it has done this consistently, sadly, throughout its history. But it, it, an intensification takes place as we get towards the end. And we're going to pick this up again. We've noticed how it, it causes people to worship the beast who represents the, the, the sea beast that's earlier on, which represented worshiping the dragon. And it's these principles from the Middle Ages church, the, the Catholic church, the general church in the, the Middle Ages, those 1260 years. But notice in verse 15, or sorry, verse 14, we're going to go to first. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast. We talked about last week about causing fire to come from heaven. Telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. And he was granted to give, granted power to give breath to the image of the beast. Okay, so if you're reading this, and you're steeped in the Old Testament, automatically you're thinking, ah, okay, there was an image in Daniel, but it gets even more clear when you look at this. And the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Right? So there's there's an image being set up, and there's worship taking place. And this is a symbolic image, but but worship is to take place of this image, and whoever doesn't worship this image... What takes place? They're going to die. Right? So this is, this is a picture of a, a parallel between Daniel's time and history repeating itself down towards the end of time. And, and this power that sets itself up, when it says an image to the beast, it's a, it's a setup of a similar function, right? You have church and state being combined just like they were in the Middle Ages. In fact, it's summarized uh, really succinctly, just to, to refresh your memory. Uh, in Great Controversy, page 445, it says, When the leading churches of the United States, uniting upon such points of doctrine as are held by them in common, shall influence the state 
to enforce their decrees and to sustain their institutions, then Protestant America will have formed an image of the Roman hierarchy and the infliction of civil penalties upon dissenters will inevitably result. Right, so it's saying the United States is going to say, hey, things are falling apart, and the church is going to step up and say, we're going to fix things. Here's what we need to do. And the church will begin to influence the state to push for certain measures that will force people away from liberty of conscience, which we said the Constitution clearly gives to all, religious liberty for all. And we looked at last week how that may sound preposterous, that that could happen in this great land of freedom, and yet we've seen it happen again and again and again. And the Bible reveals that it's going to become even more clearly the case. But let's jump back to Daniel chapter 3, because there's some fascinating things that come out here. Now remember, what is Nebuchadnezzar concerned with? He's concerned with his kingdom being the greatest in the world and lasting forever and not coming to an end. And now notice what he says specifically in, in, in Daniel chapter 3. See, I should have kept my finger there too. Daniel chapter 3, and we're going to jump down to verse 13. When they come, and they, after he, the music is played and he's gotten people to all bow down to this, this statue, Nebuchadnezzar's happy. He finally had success, and it must have been a huge mass of people because he doesn't seem to know that there were some who didn't bow down. But in Daniel chapter 3 and verse 13, they come and they say, look, there were some Jews who didn't bow down. And actually, we're going to go a verse, a couple of verses before that. Uh, we're going to go to verse 12. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, these guys were elevated because Daniel had interpreted his dream, and Daniel said, would you also elevate my friends? So they were in an elevated position in, in, in Nebuchadnezzar's court. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to who? To you. And so this statue, it, it, it's not there just to represent some god. It's not there just to represent Babylon, but Nebuchadnezzar they didn't pay due regard to you as the leader of that uh, of this nation, right? They didn't. They're they're part of this mutiny, maybe in effect. So then, uh, they do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Then verse thirteen. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Suddenly, Nebuchadnezzar begins to boil. He is filled with anger and rage and fury. Do we see a lot of anger and rage and fury in America today? A little bit, right? Maybe just a little bit here and there. Maybe you've experienced some of it as you see some of the craziness that's going on. And maybe some of it is righteous indignation. But check out Back in Revelation chapter 13. I told you we're going to go back and forth a lot. Revelation chapter 13. Notice the exact same attitude is taking place in verse 15. The beast, that's the lamb-like beast, was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast. Okay, so now the image of the beast is taking on this ability to speak. That the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many who would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So who is the image of the beast? That's this being 
Protestant America united with the state, this, this conglomeration, who are they causing to be worshipped? The first beast I heard. Earlier on, it does say that the land beast causes the first beast to be worshipped. So, in effect, they're causing the, the principles of that first beast to be worshipped. But here, that's not what it says, actually. What does it say? Verse 15, it, causing as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. You see what's happening here? The image itself is saying, worship me. And if you don't worship me, if you don't go along with my system, you're going to be killed. What do we call this? We call this self-aggrandizement, self-absorption. And here's the fascinating thing. I was looking up some things because today is Mental Health Day, World Mental Health Day, about what takes place when self-absorption is the focus in our lives. And in uh, Psychology Today, there's an article by Leon Seltzer, a, doc, uh, a psychiatrist, and the title of it is self, Self-Absorption, The Root of All, quote, Psychological Evil, question mark. Is self-absorption the root of all psychological evil? Listen to what he says. From a variety of phobic, that's fears, anxiety, and obsessive compulsive impairments, to many depressive disturbances, to various addictions, to post-traumatic stress disorder, and to most of the personality disorders, self-absorption can be seen as playing a major role. Did you catch that? Uh, Maybe some of you missed that because you're like, oh, okay, that's cool. This is saying like if you have anxiety, fears, uh, depression, uh, addictions, post-traumatic distress disorder, personality disorders, self-absorption. We have a mental health crisis in this country right now. And it's saying the key issue here is the major role is self-absorption. It's about me, focused on me. And then it goes on to say, so any effective treatment of these dysfunctions needs to include significantly reducing these obsessively self-centered tendencies. If if I want to fix my mental health issues, one key thing has to be, it's not about me anymore. (laughs) I stop focusing on me as the center. And when I look here at Revelation chapter 13 and I see that this, this beast power is, is creating, there's this image to the beast in the United States that specifically is looking for greatness for the United States. I realize that a self-centered focus is not where greatness is found. It reminds me of what Martin Luther says. Martin Luther, you remember that, that he began to pinpoint that the, the Catholic Church, which he was a part of, was, in fact, the Antichrist. And he's looking at the sea beast characteristics. He's looking at all these different things. And he's saying, clearly, the church is the Antichrist. It has put itself in the place of God. The Pope exalts himself as if he's the vicar of God. He, he, he changes the Bible. He changes God's law. He does all of these things. And clearly... Clearly, this is the Antichrist. But as he continued to study, he said something that is even more profound. Because what we like to do is we like to sit here and we like to look out and and say, the problem is over there. 
It's with this institution. It's with this country. It's with this group, group of people. But this is what he ended up saying. He said, I am more afraid of my own heart than of the Pope and all his cardinals. I have within me the great Pope, self. He said, as I I look, I realize that the problem is self-absorption. I'm so focused on me that I am the greatest problem in my life. Ty Gibson, commenting on it, says it this way. The papacy is simply a corporate manifestation of the universal human inclination to exalt self in the place of God, to justify self rather than rest in God's justifying grace, and to control our fellow human beings by emotional coercion tactics rather than grant liberty of conscience. Think about it for a minute. How often in your relationships, if you're really truly honest, when it comes down to it, when there's strife in your marriage, when there's strife with your kids, how often does selfishness have to play in that? I'll be honest. If Leah and I get into a disagreement, nine times out of ten, I'm going to go to her later and, you know, maybe I was right about this thing, but the biggest problem was I was just being selfish. It's, I'm sorry. And if I'm really honest and I look in the mirror long enough, especially if I'm looking at the mirror of God's word, I begin to recognize that the real problem in the world today is not found out there, but it's found in my heart. It's found in the fact of self-absorption. So how do we remedy this? How do we take care of this? Because have you noticed that selfishness is for real? I mean, I'm not getting much, much feedback. Any, have you ever noticed that selfishness is a problem? Or are you just sitting there thinking about how you look sta- sitting under the trees? I don't know what you're thinking about. but <laughs> Right, so self-absorption is it. I know it because, look, I have some of the sweetest daughters, I think, on the planet. And I'm not biased. Well, I am a little bit. But I'll tell you what. From the moment they were born, and, and as they get older selfishness is deeply rooted. Uh, I, I'll watch them as they, they get the book that, that they both love so much and, and I'm like, let's just share it together. Let's read it together. My book, my book. Now, that, granted, there are some, some beautiful times where, where one will say to the other, oh, here, I'll give it to Olivia or here, here's for Abby or, or Abby's crying, so here's a toy or Olivia, here, let me help you with this. But there's so often that they're fighting over who has which food, who has which book, who has which toy. And as we get older, it just changes and it gets a little bit more mature. And yet still it's self, self, self that's the entire focus. You listen to most music today and how often does it talk about just following your heart? And it talks about me being the center and me being the best. That is the focus of our society. And that, in the end, is what is pictured here as causing all of our problems and creating an implosion in society. Just look at what goes on to take place in Revelation chapter 13 because it is terrifying. And, and I wouldn't be honest with you if I didn't bring to you the full word of God this morning because look at what it goes on to say. It causes as many as don't worship the image of the beast to be killed. Verse 16, he causes all, both small and great, 
rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has a mark of the name of the beast or the number of his name, name representing character. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666, 666. This is a terrifying picture. This, this mark of the beast, this, this name of the beast, this character of the beast is, is going to be worked out in the world so that in the end, there's only two groups of people. The reality is, whatever is in my heart today, I might understand how to parse out the details of Revelation chapter 13 and, and point my fingers at a lot of different directions, but if I don't come to the realization that self is a key issue, Then, when these things begin to play out, I will seek to preserve self. Is this making sense? If if my entire thought is, I'm going to watch out for me. You know, there's a lot of people asking right now. It's, It's rampant. How do we survive what's coming? Things may get worse in the United States. And how do we survive it? What do I need to do? And I don't, I'm not here to tell you you shouldn't stock your shelves, but I'm here to tell you that spiritually speaking, the answer does not come in providing for yourself for the end. Because that is beast-like thinking. Beast-like thinking is me first. I'm going to make myself great. I'm going to watch out for me. I'm going to preserve myself. And if you look at what happens with the mark of the beast, where is it placed? It's placed either in the forehead or in the hand. And in prophecy, the forehead represents a knowledge, a recognition, a, a going along with the character of this power and saying, yeah, I'm in. And then there are those who just receive it in the hand, which just represents their actions, who are just like, I don't know, but they said I'll die if I don't bow down. <laughs> Not literally, but symbolic. If I don't go along with what this persecuting power is doing in persecuting religious minority, if I don't go along with that, it's going to be difficult for me. I won't be able to buy or sell. You know, in the United States, what's the first thing that we do to a nation that is not doing what we want it to do? Economic sanctions. Let's, let's put financial pressure. We are not just respected as a nation because of our military power. That's a huge part of it, but we also have a financial power, and we're able to influence people based upon that. And when this comes to an individual level, the Bible says first, The United States is going to force those, this image of the beast is going to force those who refuse to go along to not be able to participate. Economic sanctions will come upon us. And then after that will come this, just like Nebuchadnezzar saying, if you don't do this, you're going to be put to death. It's a somber reality. But there is good news. There is a lot of good news, especially when we remember that this is paralleled to Daniel chapter 3. Remember what happens in Daniel chapter 3? Go back there. There were three people that didn't bow down. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, out of all those thousands of officials, they didn't bow down. What was it that was stirring in them? Well, when they come to the king, they let him know some of it. Go back to Daniel chapter 3. We pick up the story again, Daniel chapter 3, and we will jump down to... Daniel chapter 3 and verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Is this the reality? And then he goes on to say, look, here's the deal, guys. I'm going to play the music again. 
And I'm going to give you the opportunity to do it again. This time, just bow down. But then he says, but if you don't, notice what he goes on to say at the end of verse 15, but if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Nebuchadnezzar is placing himself above God. He's saying, there is no God as powerful as Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is going to kill you if you refuse to follow and worship my kingdom. And I love the response. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, verse 16, answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case... Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But then it goes on to say, but if not. But, but even, if, even if God chooses not to deliver us, it's not about us. We're not focused on whether we are preserved in the end. What we're focused on is living a life of worship. That Jesus is absolutely everything. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. What gave them the audacity to answer like that? What gave them the boldness? What gave them this courage, this courage that you and I need to have? Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11 says that they overcame him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. They weren't self-absorbed. They weren't worried about self-preservation. They weren't trying to watch out for number one. That's the answer in the end. It's either selflessness or selfishness. The two principles that will become magnified more and more on this planet. What gave them the audacity to answer and to give such a selfless answer? Go back to Isaiah chapter 43. Because Isaiah was a contemporary. Isaiah was actually, maybe a, a little bit earlier, a hundred years previous, he had, had written what we find in the book of Isaiah. And Daniel and his three friends would have studied this when they, before they were taken captive into Babylon. They would have studied this for themselves. And just look at this beautiful promise that I believe was ringing in the ears of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Isaiah 43. And this is, this is how you and I can have release from the self-absorption that grips our heart naturally. This is how you and I can find the ability to stand against the pressures in our world today. It's by recognizing who God is and what he's done for us as revealed in his promises in the Bible. Verse 1 says, But now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. You don't need to be afraid no matter what happens in your life for I have already redeemed you. You are mine. I have called you by name. I have chosen you. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned nor will the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Verse 4, So since you were precious in my sight, you have been honored, and I have loved you. You see, the, the crucial fact for, for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is that they recognized that they were loved by a higher power. 
that they were chosen by a higher power, that they were redeemed by a higher power, and they recognized that it didn't matter their worth in the sight of this king. It didn't matter the threats that were coming at them from this king. This king had a picture of God as one who worship or die. In the end, this image of the beast sets up a kingdom that's worship or die. But God has said, I chose you. I redeemed you. You're precious. I love you. I'll be with you every step of the way. But the king is so full of his self-absorption that he gets more upset. In fact, his very countenance is changed in verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury and the expression of his face changed. You ever seen somebody so upset that they just can't hide it? It's just seething out of them. Nebuchadnezzar cannot stand this selfless answer. And he's like, okay, go and heat that furnace seven times hotter, which is physically impossible, but seven is this, this it, it seems to be physically impossible, but this picture of the hottest possible fire you can possibly make. And they had oil fields there in Babylon. Babylon is where modern-day Iraq is, so they're just heaping oil onto this fire, and this fire is burning hotter and hotter and hotter. And then he says, hey, get the strongest soldiers to take these guys in there because this is a seriously hot fire. And so they, they grab Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these strongest soldiers, and as they go and they cast them into the fiery furnace, those men drop dead on the spot. But then we pick up the story of these men who believed in the promises of a God who had chosen them, who loved them, redeemed them, who said they were precious in his sight, and who says that about you and every person on this planet, everyone that's willing to listen. Nebuchadnezzar, in verse 24, it says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Yeah, you're right. There's three. Look, he answered. I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. I will be with you when you go through the waters. When the fire is there, it will not scorch you. I will be with you. And that's everything. To recognize the loving presence of Jesus. When you recognize that he loves you, that he's chosen you, that he has redeemed you, and that if you will only believe and turn to him, he is with you. And his presence is everything to you and will enable you to stand like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And you read the rest of the story. They go and they they call him to come out. Nebuchadnezzar says, come out of here. And they come out. And, and their, their bonds are burned off, the, the things that were tying them up, but their clothes are not burned. They don't even smell like smoke because the presence of Jesus was there with them. But they weren't in it with Jesus just for self-preservation. Even if we die, we're still going to worship Jesus. That was what they said. We're going to worship our God no matter what. So in the end, when you read in Revelation chapter 13, thankfully it doesn't end there. If it ended with this whole mark of the beast picture and being killed, if you didn't get, receive the mark of the beast, it would be terrifying. But thankfully it goes on to give us a better picture. In chapter 14 and verse 1, it says, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. There will be people who don't receive the name, the mark in the 
the hand or the forehead, but have something else in their thought processes. Something else has sunk in deep, and that is their father's name. I wish that I'd recognized this earlier in my life. I remember back in the, the year between my sophomore and junior year in high school when I went and I did this summer program called Zoe Wave, where we went sharing life with the, the community of Santa Cruz. And we were doing all types of things to, to try to let people know how much God loved them, baking cookies for firefighters, uh, going around painting things and fixing up fences and doing all of these different things to try to let people know how much God loved them. And at the end of that summer, my roommate and I were from the same academy. And he said, man, this, this has changed my life. This was a guy who had been a drug addict, who had been like so suicidal that he had taken a pistol to his head in a backyard pool party and had squeezed the trigger multiple times hoping to die. But God had spared his life. And that summer he said, man, God has so changed my life. I can't wait to go back to our academy. I'm going to be the religious vice president and we are going to set that school on fire for Jesus. Are you ready, Zach? And I wish in that moment that I'd just been like, yes, I can't wait to stand up for Jesus. But in that moment I began to think about not Jesus, not what would happen in my friends' lives, but I began to think about me. I began to think about my teammates on the sports team, what would they think about me? And I began to think about the girls that I was interested in. And, and if I was going to Bible study rather than being with the cool guys who were playing basketball, what would they think of me? And I told my friend, I said, you know what? I hope it goes really well for you this year. But once we get back to school and the flow of things, I, I got some other things I need to do. It's not going to be the same. And you know, that year, it's one of the worst years of my life. I remember that was the year when I was introduced to alcohol, to marijuana. That was the year when I began to dabble in a lot of things that, that could have wrecked my life for good. But you know what breaks my heart the most? My friend who was so fired up about Jesus. Like we would go to get in the car to go to a Christian concert and he's like, Wait, what are you guys bringing with you? No, 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 I'm not even, I can't even go there. And he'd find another ride. We constantly were inundating him with this stuff that was from his past until finally he listened to one of my friends and he got back into his old life. And today he's a DJ working at bars. He's strung out. And I can't help but wonder, how could at least one person's life have been different if I was not self-absorbed? let alone my other friends, if I said, yeah, let's go to Bible study instead of the basketball game. What if it wasn't about me, but it was about other people, and it was about a God of love who'd given himself for me? That could have changed everything. Friends, I regret that decision, but I'm thankful for a merciful God who's still working in his life and who's still working in my life and who every morning gives me that opportunity to open my Bible and say, hey, do you want that name written in your forehead? Do you want to recognize more fully the God of love that I am? Do you want to know that I have chosen you, that you are redeemed, that you are precious in my sight, that I love you, and that I will be with you today? And every morning I have the choice to say, yes, Jesus, I want you. Would you lead me? Would you guide me? Because I will follow. Right after saying that the 
144,000 are there with Jesus on the mountain. It says that they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. And the last verse we'll look at is in John chapter 17. Jesus talking about this name of God, which represents His character, His loving character. In the end of that beautiful prayer where He prays for His disciples in John chapter 17, He concludes it with these incredible words in John chapter 17 and verse 26. He says this, And I have declared to them your name, and will declare it. What does his name represent? His loving character. The character that laid down itself for all of humanity. The God that said, I want you to live more than I want for me to live. That the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. That, that your name may be written into their minds, that it may be so ingrained in them that, that we can actually come and make our home in them and that our character will become their character and that they will exhibit selfless love to the world around them. That's what we're called to, friends. There's going to come down to two different camps on this planet. Pressure is going to build more and more to the extent where in that pressure, we're going to either be selfish or selfless. And on our own, we're going to be selfish unless we choose to let God transform our hearts. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have freely accepted every person in the beloved. Lord God, help us not to reject you. God, I don't know where people are at right now. There may be some here who they've known you for a long time and what they need right now is to allow your love to sink in a little more deeply and to more fully just let you take over in their lives. And there may be others here today who have never fully accepted Jesus for themselves. Father, help them to know that you are a gift to them too. That you want for them to accept you and that you will freely lavish all your love upon them today. And Father, some of us just need a renewed commitment to take time getting to know your loving character on a daily basis. And I pray that you'd wake us up in the morning with a passion to get to know you as our best friend in God, the one who's redeemed us, the one who's called us by name, the one who says we're precious in your sight. Oh God, thank you for being with us when we go through the waters, when we go through the fire, that you will be right there in the midst of it with us. We choose you today. May we live lives of worship because you are worthy. Thank you for your love that gives liberty and justice to all. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.